Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hey everybody, it's Jim Mallard here. Welcome to the Mallard Report. The Mallard Report is recorded in front of a live virtual audience on the Duck Pond. Tuesday nights, 9 p.m. Eastern, live. Mallard.com. M-A-L-L-I-A-R-D.com. One more thing before we start. Let me turn it over to my friend that you may know from Ancient Aliens and the Curse of Oak Island and many other things. Robert Clotworthy. On the Malliard Report, the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed on the show are solely those of the hosts and guests, and not necessarily of Evergreen Podcasts, KillerPodcast.com, sponsor or affiliate, or any other individual or group. On the Malliard Report, the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in the show are solely those of the hosts and guests, and not necessarily of Evergreen Podcast, KillerPodcast.com, sponsor or affiliate, or any other individual or group. I hope everybody's doing well this evening. It's uh, Tuesday, so that means it's time to listen to me again. Sorry, but that's why it's Tuesday. You can develop your week any how any way you want, but you got to listen to me on Tuesdays. I hope everybody's well. Um, I, hey, first and foremost, I want to welcome Zachary Green to the program. Zach, first and foremost, man, thank you for hopping on with me at the at the late late notice. But uh, we're excited about this. No problem. That's the way these things kind of happen uh, better that way. I think. I think so. So, first and foremost, you're a former Marine. So, thank you for your service. Now you you got your own podcast going out there, which is the Warrior's Voice. So why don't we skip? Let's let's get right into the, the fun promo for that, so we can get that out of the way before we forget. Sure. So we love to talk about people that um, have experienced uh, being a warrior, and our definition of a warrior is anybody that has had adversity or struggle, and that has caused them to grow and um, learn from those adversity and struggles. Kind of the concept of iron sharpens iron, and and developing that rhino skill skin. So we have. Everyone from true combat veterans that have shared experiences and uh, some pretty horrible experiences in war and how that helps shape them, all the way to that mom that's working two jobs just to get her kids to go to a nice uh, private school, to a gentleman that we had on a couple weeks ago that served quite a bit of time in federal penitentiary and turned his life around and now is uh, inspiring other uh, young people not to make the mistakes he made. So where did that, I mean, where did, I mean, obviously I kind of know that comes from you after thumbnail sketch of your biography here, but what made you want to talk about that? So I, um, when I was in the Marines, it was really interesting. Um, up until that point, I mean, I had a lot of struggle growing up. I had really bad ADHD. I went to six different schools from kindergarten through high school, constantly was having teachers telling me I wasn't going to amount to much and wasn't going to do well. And, um, every time time someone would say that it would energize me to to prove them wrong and to show them I have something more to give this world and it's funny because they call it ADHD when you're in school but when you get out of school it's called multitasking and then all of a sudden they're like hey he's an energetic multitasker he can do five things at once and he can control a room with a story and all that type of stuff so I really took what originally was a disability and turned it into kind of like a superpower is what I tell people and the concept really started when I was at Paris Island. You know, I had a uh, somewhat of an upper-class family. My parents provided everything for me growing up. I was very, I guess you could say I was spoiled. Um, a big-time mama's boy. And I get down to Paris Island, and all of a sudden, my mom wasn't there to take care of me. And uh, they had these really mean drill instructors and really difficult physical challenges that we had to do and mental challenges. And it was interesting because the the young recruits that grew up in the coal mines of West Virginia, that literally some of them slept on dirt floors. The guys that uh, grew up in the projects of Philadelphia or the slums of New Orleans, they didn't have a problem with Paris Island boot camp because they're like, hey, this isn't tough. You know what I've been through? That's tough. You know, we get three meals a day. We got a nice roof over our head. It's not that bad. For me, I really struggled. And what I realized was all those things that I thought were good for me, all those things that happened that that coddled me and and gave me those great opportunities, they weren't developing me as a warrior. 
and you have to really build that warrior skin. And that, that's kind of where the, the, the uh, concept started. And over the next couple of decades with my career that I'm sure we'll go into here in a second and, and my book that just came out, I really wanted to unpack what those warrior stories are and, and really use them as a tool to inspire others uh, to take those hardships and, and be proud of them and know that that actually makes drives and builds your character rather than something to be ashamed of or something to you know, have to go to therapy for. So let's start with this fun question. What made you want to enlist in the service? I mean, it, so- it sounds like you were doing your parents. I mean, you were in a nice place and doing OK. So, I mean, that's kind of um, a weird. Yeah, I, it, it was a total shock to my parents. Actually, it started in kindergarten, maybe first grade. We had to take a bunch of those colored pencils and draw a story that makes us happy. And so, you know, the kids are drawing unicorns and they're drawing Santa Claus and fairy tales and all this stuff. And I drew a battle scene with people's heads getting chopped off and tanks shooting and blowing people up and, you know, attack helicopters coming down. And as soon as I showed mine, they immediately sent me the principal's office. Then the school psychologist came out Then they called my parents and, before you know it, I'm at Cincinnati Children's Hospital talking to the psychologist, and they're like, no, the guy just is fascinated by the military. I was G.I. Joe every single year for Halloween, and my parents are freaking out. They're like, oh, he'll just grow out of this, and my friends would be outside playing soccer and kick the can and riding bikes, and I'd be out in the woods spreading mud on my face and recreating you know, battles, and um when it came time to actually enlist, I always knew I was going to be in the Marine Corps. I had posters of Marines in my room and my locker at school had all these different Marine pictures and everything. And I remember I went to the Army recruiter and the first thing he told me was, hey, we're going to give you a bunch of signing bonuses. You can pick any job you want. I had a pretty high score on my app, ASVAB, which is kind of the, the test they give you that tells you what jobs are available for you. Then I went to the Air Force and they talked about how easy it was going to be and how civilian oriented it was and how um, a lot of great job transferable skills when I got out of the Air Force. And then I went to the Navy office and they talked about adventure and getting to sail the seven seas and see different parts of the world. And I walk into the Marine Corps office kind of with a little bit of a swagger and said, look, the Army said this, the Air Force said they'll give me this, the Navy told me about this. What can the Marines do? And I'll never forget, his name was Sergeant, Sergeant Beatrice Houston. He had a chest that was pretty big and a waist that was pretty small and a nice V-shape to, uh, you know, you could tell he worked out all the time. And as soon as I said, what can the Marine Corps do for me? He kind of got mad and he leaned back in his seat and he goes, son, the Marine Corps has been the toughest fighting force for the last 250 years and will be that way with or without you. He said, the question is, what can you offer the Marine Corps? And I kind of looked at him. I'm like, well, what are my bonuses? Where am I going to get to do it? And he's like, you're not going to do anything because you're not going to be able to make it through boot camp. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, wait a second here. And he's like, I've seen your type. You look like you're tough and bad, but there's no way you'd be able to survive, you know, 16 weeks of Paris Island. I'm like, son of a bitch, give me the contract. I signed it right there on the spot. And before you know it. I'm standing on the famous yellow footprints down at Paris Island. Like, what the hell did I just get myself into? And obviously, it worked out well for you, not to minimize it, but I mean, obviously, it turned out okay for you. So, but now, now I'm fascinated by the transition back out because I, I've talked to a number of vets who, uh, for the lack of a better word, have struggled as they try to re-enter civilian life. So, how did that go for you? Yeah, so it was kind of the opposite for me. I got out because there was no action. I was in the infantry and then did some work in the artillery. I was trained in a cold weather infantry unit. Our area of operation was northern Norway. We were still ready for the Russians to come over from Norway, and I was going to be the road bump to stop the big Russian wave. Um, This was 1992 at the time. Um, Terrorism was was something you read about in, in the books. It never happened. So by the time I got out, it was during the Clinton years, um, a lot of attrition, um, no deployments. I'm like, I'm not going to do this to practice for six years. I want to get out there and fight. So at that time, you know, I met my wife and realized, you know, I, hey, you know, maybe try this thing in the civilian world. And, and I not only did enlisted, but I was in college also. I went, got a four-year degree and also went through the Marine Corps Officer Candidate Program that was viciously tough uh, physically, mentally wasn't nearly as tough as what Paris Island was. 
And two years later, September 11th happens. And I'm like, wow. And I got a lot of, I guess it would be the opposite of PTSD, a lot of survivor's guilt. And um, one of the units that I served with, our sister units, lost about 22 guys within the first couple of weeks. It was just, they got hammered. And I went to several of the funerals, and here I am standing in front of this coffin with the flag drips coffin and one of my fellow Marines in there. And I started thinking, did they end up in this box because I quit and I didn't re-enlist? Did I leave a hole and they filled that hole and now they're dead and I'm not? And it just really struck me, especially since September 11th is happening now and I wanted to do what I had trained to do. So I did the next best thing, which was joining our local volunteer fire department. Um, In the Marine Corps, we take stuff that's really fun and we have a wonderful talent of making it as miserable as possible. And in the fire service, we take stuff that's really miserable and make it as fun as possible. So it was a nice transition But it was that constant strive for service and purpose. And I think one of the reasons a lot of veterans struggle, and I work with a lot of them now living down here right off the um, coast of Paris Island and Beaufort Air Station, Fort Stewart, uh, Georgia, is you lose that sense of purpose. And for me, I found that purpose in protecting my community and being this new thing called a first responder now because the, the battlefield is no longer in Iraq or Iran or Afghanistan. It's it's in our backyard now. Yes. So I mentioned the duck pond to you earlier. So now I've got to honor that commitment that I made to you and to them. Cat um, Ward wants me to thank you for his service from a Canadian military spouse. And there's another um, former military wife in the, the chat room that also says hello and moved four times in six years. That must I won't well, say once you said after that, but you can imagine. <laughs> Jim, and I'd like to just pause there for a second. We don't talk about the toll that this takes on military spouses. They are the true heroes. And the word hero for me is is something that gets used incorrectly a lot. A hero is somebody that does something above and beyond what their job is or what their call and duty is. And you cannot even come close to comprehend what military spouses have to go up with to not have that uncertainty of not being able to talk to their spouse. And if the phone rings and it's two o'clock in the morning and they sleep through it and they're devastated because maybe that was the only time they could talk. So the only way our military is as strong as it is, is because of the incredible spouses that um, take care of not the stuff at home, but also serve just as much as those of us that had the uniform on. Totally, totally true. Okay, so you get out, you start start being a fireman. What else? What else is filling this time? I mean, you, I, I I know you got a lot going on. I don't have the chronological chronological order to kind of fill in these gaps for myself. So help me out here. Questions. Um, <laughs> my main job was at Eli Lilly. I was in the pharmaceutical business, and I um, did a lot of different assignments there, from sales to sales management. Eventually, went into corporate and worked on. Uh, strategy and development teams. I got to do some work on brand teams, helping to launch and develop billion dollar brands. And what I really learned was when you create a brand and it could be Pepsi, it could be McDonald's, it could be, you know, Prozac, you don't sell the features and benefits. You sell the problem that you're solving. So when you you talk about McDonald's, they don't sell cheeseburgers. They talk about, you know, uh, I'm loving it. You know, it's happiness. It's fun. It's that experience you get. Um, you talk about, um, in my case, one of the drugs I sold was for diabetes. We never talked about your HbA1c1s or your, you know, hemoglobin levels. What we talked about is, hey, when you have diabetes, you can't spend time with your grandchildren and you have a lot of issues. And so what if you work with our brand and take this medication, it's going to help you have a better, happier, more fulfilling and healthy life. So that was really what helped me is I thought of everything that I did around what is the problem and what is the solution. And the problem smacked me in the face pretty hard very early on in my career as a firefighter when I got lost in a fire. Um, People don't understand how disoriented it is when you go into a fire. First of all, it's dark. Um, Most of the time the electricity is out, but even if the electricity's on, the black smoke's rising up, it blocks out the light. You got about 80 pounds of gear on between your, your self-contained breathing apparatus, your face mask, very big bulky clothes and boots and gloves. 
And as you crawl, because you have to crawl, you can't walk. If you walk inside of a burning building and let's say the floor in front of you got burned out and you didn't know it, you'd step right into that hole and fall into the basement. But when you crawl, if your hands are in front of you, you can feel that there's, hey, maybe there's a staircase there or a hole. As I'm working my way down the hallway, I'm looking for doors or feeling for doors. And I realized there was no doors because there's always a door at the end of the hallway or a, or a, um, a, uh, whatchamacallit staircase. Well, I'm like, shoot, I realized I'm in an actual walk-in closet and I'm lost. And I panicked as I'm sure anybody would. And then when I finally got control of my senses, I looked down at my regulator. I had 20 minutes of air left. So if I can't figure this out in 20 minutes, I'm not going to make it. You take one breath of that black smoke, it's instant cardiac arrest. It's not like the smoke you have around the campfire where you cough a little bit. This stuff is full of tons of toxins and just bad stuff. So when I got outside, I remember talking to my captain. I was really upset, obviously, and he starts making fun of me. And he's like, look, you just got to get used to being disoriented and in that darkness. That's why you have your tool, an axe, a uh, a large pike pole and you swing it back and forth to you while you're going through the darkness like a blind person with a cane. I'm thinking like, this is ridiculous. I mean, that's what they did back in caveman time. There's got to be a way that I can solve this problem to help my brother and sister firefighters. And that's what really launched um, my career into entrepreneurship at that time. So let's pause there for a minute because you you did good there. You must have done this once or twice. Um, I'm just imagining like my house being full, filled with smoke tonight, right? If that happened to me, like I've, I've been here for years, so I know where the doors are in perspective, but if you've never been in my house and then you're stuck in this situation, I can't imagine going into a house that, you know, all that adrenaline, all this other stuff and, and then trying to find your way around. Well, first couple things happen. Your adrenaline's going off the charts. So you're not thinking clearly because your, your brain's flooded with all and adrenaline and all these other things. Your senses are all muted because A, you can't see, B, you can't really even feel anything uh, detailed. You can feel like big stuff, like a wall or a step. But I will argue that you probably can't find your way out of your house in the darkness. And the reason I say that is the most we'll ever experience this is getting up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom. You're still going to have a night light on. You're still going to have a little light in the bathroom. But if you were to go right now, close your eyes, spin around three times and then find your way out without opening your eyes. You'd be surprised how difficult it is to do that because you may not realize that the dog's in front of you or that there's a couch over there that you trip over or you fall down the step. So it's tough in your own house, and it's certainly a lot tougher when you've never been in that house before. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm falling down the steps because I'm upstairs right now, so this isn't going to end well. <laughs> hey, at least, at least I know where I'm at when I get to the bottom, if I'm still alive. There you oh. go. Well, it's funny you say that because I would say 80 to 90% of the time we find bodies, they're within five feet of the front door. Um, it's just one of those things that you can almost get to that point, but rarely um, do you find someone in a hallway or in a kitchen. They're almost always by that front door and they just didn't quite make it out. Well, most accidents, car accidents happen within that last, what is it, two miles of home or whatever it is. Yep. Same situation. Very true. Okay, so you've got... You've got the problem. Now, what's the solution? So when I was in the Marine Corps, we had these glow-in-the-dark tabs that were on the back of our helmets. And we called them cat eyes or ranger eyes in the Army, they called them. And it was just a little bit of glow-in-the-dark. So at nighttime, when we're on patrol, you could see the guy in front of you. And I remembered that. I'm like, what if we could apply that to the fire service? Because the one thing I didn't tell you when I got lost is I went to turn on my flashlight, and it wasn't working. Uh, most firefighter flashlights have to get recharged every time you use it. It's not like putting in new batteries. And the last thing you're going to do when you get done with a really difficult fire or difficult training evolution is remember to take that flashlight off, walk to the other side of the squad bay and put it on the charger, and then remember to get it again on your next shift. So there's this guy named Murphy. He's got a law of physics. Anything that can go wrong will go wrong at the worst time. Anything with batteries or light bulbs that happen in the military, it happens in the fire service, is going to fail when you need it most. So, A, I had to find a way to create a light source that didn't rely on batteries, light bulbs, or electricity. And, B, I had to find a way to create a visual reference point. 
Now, a lot of our gear you see in firefighters have got this bright either yellow or orange reflective striping on it. That only works when there's light on it. and darkness, that reflector doesn't reflect anything. So I started playing around with these different chemicals and I found a way to make the glow in the dark glow extremely bright for a very long period of time. I'm talking you could read a newspaper from two feet away with this stuff and for a day or two it would still be glowing. And I put it into a couple different types of uh, carriers, worked with a bunch of brilliant scientists and developers and came up with a high temperature grade silicone band that would go around your helmet. And so when I went into a fire a couple of weeks later after I had the prototype, all anybody could see down that dark hallway was this green circle. And I remember one of the guys came over to lift it off of my head, my helmet, and I'm getting ready to turn around to slug the guy. And he's like, what the hell is that? You got this green glow coming off of your helmet. I'm like, can we put the wet stuff on the red stuff and get this fire knocked down? <laughs> And by the time we got outside, guys are throwing $20 bills at me. And they're like, where'd you buy it? I'm like, I made it. They're like, can you make me a couple? I'm like, sure. So over the next six months, I made about $5,000 driving from fire station to fire station, selling uh, glow-in-the-dark paints and bands and tool wraps out of the trunk of my car. That's crazy. I mean, I mean I'm glad it worked, but I mean, that had to have been some sort of process to get through. And I'm sitting here thinking about glow sticks because my kids are always in them, right? I mean, they're they're great, but because you go from breaking them to breaking them, you'll know what I'm saying, right? And then you have that all over you, and that's so. Is, am I in the right kind of ballpark here? Like the uh, yes and no. So there's different types of luminescent. There's bioluminescence, which is the firefly or the jellyfish that glows under the water. There's chemical luminescence, which is what you talked about, which is two chemicals that come together, cause a reaction, and the output of that reaction is photons, which is just a fancy word for light, light energy. And then what I worked with was called photoluminescence. So what that is, you had to have an external light source charge these crystals, the microscopic crystals, and once they got charged up from that light, think of them as like miniature batteries almost, they then release the light back out with this really brilliant green glow. Um, the challenge is it's really difficult to work with it because if you put it in certain materials, the glow doesn't work. Or if it's on other materials, especially on the fire ground, we deal with very hot environments. We're exposing ourselves four, five, 600 degree temperatures, and that usually screws it up. So I had to find a way to put it in a carrier that A, still glowed in the dark, and B was able to handle the rigors of firefighting and the heat and the steam and all that other stuff. So silicon became the the way to do that because I, I I have those um, handles for my cast iron skillet that I've you tried I've tried to burn several times and haven't been successful. <laughs> Don't ever tell a firefighter to burn something; they'll find a way to burn it up or destroy it. There's no question about that. So, I'm sorry. I'm now thinking about getting myself in trouble. Anyway, so. Okay, so you have proof of concept, you have the product, you're getting out selling it, but obviously here comes another question. So what turns the corner for it? So it's, it's a great question. So at that time, I was on a assignment up at Indianapolis. I was commuting back and forth from Cincinnati to Indianapolis a couple times a month. The assignment was up and I had to take another assignment. And at that point in time, I'm like, man, I think I really got an opportunity here with this stuff with the firefighting. So one of the options was to leave the company and get a corporate buyout, which was like a nine-month severance package. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to do this. I remember my fire chief sat me down and said, Zach, you really have something that can revolutionize and change the fire industry. Stop pussyfooting around. And I remembered this quote from my favorite leader of all time, Teddy Roosevelt. And he said, when you're faced with a monumental decision, the best thing to do is the right thing. The next best thing to do is the wrong thing, but the worst thing to do is nothing. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to do this. So there was a big trade show in Indianapolis called FDIC. It's the largest firefighter show in the country. There's 30,000, 40,000 firefighters. Um, a booth was like 20,000, 30,000 bucks. So I pretty much used almost all of my severance package just to buy the booth. Um, I didn't have any money to build a booth. I could just own uh, have enough money to rent the space. So I went to Walmart and I bought a soccer tent, uh, one of those black, you know, kind of yeah. pop-up soccer tents. And I had sidewalls that I held together with duct tape and zip ties and 
cardboard signs that just said, hey, come check out the stuff in the dark. Had a couple of my firefighter buddies helping me out. And over the next three days, we had a line so long in front of our booth that the people in the other booths that, by the way, were like $100,000 three-level <laughs> booths with models and all this other stuff, they were thanking us because our people that were in line for so long to come into our little tent were then talking to them in their booth while they were waiting. I booked $100,000 in sales in three days. I had a problem, though. I had no money to buy I was the raw say, I can see where this is going to be a problem because you just spent all your money. Right. I have no way to produce this. I have no way to fill these orders. I have no distribution capability. Um, the manufacturer I was using was not able to do that. And I was like, Zach, you got to stop taking orders. And I'm like, screw that. I'm a Marine. We accomplish the mission no matter what. And that started that first journey into entrepreneurship of the concept of sacrifice and courage. Courage is not not being scared. Courage is being scared, but pushing through that fear. And what I did was I refinanced my home. I maxed out all my credit cards. I eventually had to take uh, borrow money off of my 401k and just to buy enough raw materials to be able to fill those orders. Now, those first orders kind of came through and then more orders started coming and Next thing you know, I, did, I didn't go on the show Shark Tank. I actually got an opportunity to be on the show, and I turned it down. Uh, I can tell you about that later because that's usually a, not a good thing. I was going to say, hold on. We're going to have to come back to that. Go ahead. No. <laughs> but, um, I did raise a couple million dollars of venture capital from some uh, local investors, and I realized the real opportunity here is not just firefighters. You know, I'm all about the why. The why for me is – helping firefighters reduce disorientation and increase accountability in the dark environment. But the bigger opportunity is exit signs. There's a hundred million exit signs in the United States. They all need batteries, light bulbs, and electricity. I found a loophole in the code that said, as long as the exit sign is visible for 90 minutes in darkness, it passes code. doesn't matter if there's a light bulb in it or not, just as long as it's visible in the dark. And I started making glow-in-the-dark exit signs. I actually got a patent on them. And over the next couple of years, turned it into about a $30 million business. Glow-in-the-dark exit signs. I didn't see that coming. I mean, I, I guess I should have because of the glow-in-the-dark technology, but... <laughs> well, if you go into most of the Home Depots or most of the Kroger's, you'll find my exit signs hanging up there. Now, now this is going to seem like a very simple question, but you're going to hate me for it. Should we, should we be placing exit signs down instead of up? Absolutely, and thank you for bringing that up. So there was a horrible fire at the MGM Grand Hotel in 1988, I believe it was, in Las Vegas. Uh, hundreds of people died, and the reason they died is they couldn't find the exit. So I would ask all of your listeners, think about the last time you were at a hotel. N not where was the elevator, where was the emergency exit? Because usually the emergency exits are on the sides of the hallways or in the center, not where the elevator is. If you go out into that hallway and there's smoke above you, because that's what smoke does, it rises, it's blocked out the light, and where's the exit sign? At the ceiling. You're not going to see it. So when you go to Vegas, every single hotel hallway in Vegas has low-level exit signs. Why? Because of the problem that happened at that MGM Grand Fire. It's actually in a lot of the building codes, and Pennsylvania is one area that actually does require it. The problem is it's not usually enforced. Yeah, I was going to say, I have, I can't say I've ever seen it. And, of course, you tell me it is, and now I'm going to have to pay more attention. But I think You've probably have seen it and just didn't realize it, and you may think, well, that's kind of stupid. Why would you put one down there? But, again, in a fire, you're not going to be standing up. You're going to be crawling on your hands and knees below that smoke level, and you're not going to know which way the exit is. So what other things can we be doing to, uh, I don't want to say retrofit, but keep us more safe as we're looking forward? So when I used to travel, and I travel on average about 150 nights a year, the first thing I do is when I get to my hotel room is I stop, I go outside, and I count how many steps it is to the uh, exit stairwell. Now, people make fun of me for it. They say it's crazy. But guess what? Sure enough, when I was in Cleveland once, there was a fire. Now, it wasn't blacked out. But we did have to leave in the middle of the night. And um, if you're searching around for that exit, it's too late. I mean, you, a fire doubles in size every 30 to 60 seconds. 
So by the time it takes for you to work your way around that exit, that's what killed all those people at the MGM Grand as they couldn't find the way to that stairwell. So that that's the number one advice I give people when they travel is just find out where the exit signs are, exits are. Is it a left or right out of your room? And then how many steps is it? And what about the what about my house? Screw you traveling. What about me? No. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the number one thing I talk about the house is have two ways to get out no matter where you are. Every place. So in your bedroom right now, you're like, oh, shoot, I'm in trouble. No, you're not. You have the door to get out of your bedroom and then you have a window. How are you going to get out of that window? Um, what are you going to do? Now, you don't have to be totally overkill, but they do make these little miniature chain ladders that you have there. The number one thing you can do to prevent a total loss in a house for fire is real simple. Close the door. It's not just going to prevent the fire from getting outside of that door. A non-fire rated door will still hold fire back for a very long period of time. But the big issue is the airflow. Because if you've got all that airflow through your house, that's what feeds the fire. So if you can close doors, now don't go back in your house to close the door. Don't go out of your way to close the door. But as you're leaving your house, close as many doors as you can without limiting your time it takes for you to get out. And that's going to A, hold the fire back and B, stop that airflow in your house from feeding the fire. Yeah, okay. So what? Um, don't obviously don't go back in. Right. For first Absolutely don't go back in. That's the first, even first if, and foremost. There, your dog's <laughs> in there. Let the firefighters get them. The the chance of you um, dying and them dying is a lot higher if you go back in than if you um, um, you can't. And again, everyone thinks that, oh, I'm going to be a hero and get in there. But fire doesn't discriminate. It's extremely dangerous. And what happens is nobody dies of fire. It's a total myth. You don't even die of smoke inhalation. You're going to die before the smoke even gets to you because you're going to get hit with carbon monoxide, which is invisible and doesn't smell. And that's going to cause you to get disoriented and eventually pass out. And then while you're unconscious and still breathing, you're going to breathe in that dark black toxic smoke, which will cause cardiac arrest and kill you. And then eventually the fire will consume you. But it's about speed and getting out there as quickly as possible. Okay, so this has been bugging me long enough. <laughs> you you passed on going on Shark Tank now. Yeah, so the, it's called Shark Tank for a reason because they're sharks, and you guys are the bait when you go on there. Um, there are no good deals on Shark Tank. Um, they are just brutal to the entrepreneurs. Um, the usually the best deals are the ones when they say no, I don't want to accept your deal. But what a lot of people don't know is you you still have to give them 5% of the ownership of your company when you go on the show. I've known four or five people that have been on Shark Tank and only one of them has been successful. And he actually went on a second time and raised a second round of money, but he still ended up going out of business down the road. So it's a a reality show. Um, If you're serious about raising money, there's a huge and very thriving entrepreneurial community in virtually every major city that has venture capitalists, private equity firms, and different types of groups that can help you raise money. Well, wait, 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 wait. 5% off the top just to be there. That's from what I have heard from multiple people. That's in the fine print is they still get a piece of you. Now, the other thing is when you get venture capital money, you're doing a deal with the devil. Um, you know, yeah, the devil's going to give you whatever. But at the end of the day, they, they own your soul and um, they will eventually take control. Even if you're only selling five or 10 percent of the company, um, you have to find good investors and the investors I had. You know, we've had some real tough times together, but they've always stuck with me and they've always been there for me. But it's no longer your company the second you take on an investor. And a lot of people say, well, I'm not going to take on any investors. Well, it's this kind of. Uh, what is it? The chicken and the egg thing. You're not going to be able to get to that big level unless you have cash. Cash is the most important thing for an entrepreneur. And the reason why, and I kind of shared my example, you can get all the sales in the world. Sales don't pay the bills. Cash pays the bill. And there's this thing called the cash conversion cycle, which is the time it takes from you to spend money and then recoup that money in the form of profit. That's what kills businesses. So if you do $100,000 in sales and it costs you $50,000 in raw materials, 
you may end up having to go a month or two to get somebody to produce it. And by the way, being a small business, they're not going to work on payment terms. They're going to want their money up front. Then you've got to go ahead and produce it. Then you got to sell it. Then the people that buy it are not going to buy it right on the spot. They're going to take it on the spot, but they're going to give you 30-day terms, 60-day terms. But they're not going to always pay you on 30 days because they know they can float you. They can take time. And I almost went out of business several times and almost every time was because I sold a deal that was bigger than the cash um, flow that we had to support that deal. Now, I'm going to play the devil, not the devil's advocate, the devil, because, well, who wants to be the advocate when you could be the guy? Okay, so Shark Tank, I mean, it's, it's got millions of viewers and all this good stuff, right? So being in front of that many people has to be good for the product, though, even with the... Yeah, I mean, that's why they get the 5%. I mean, you're, you're getting credibility. You can talk about, hey, I was on Shark Tank. You can put it on the bottom of your signature line on your email. That's great. But don't mistake what Shark Tank is. It's an entertainment show. If you're serious about raising money, you don't go on Shark Tank. You do it through private equity and through venture capitalists and other areas. I'm fully aware. I'm just playing it for the hashtags, you know. <laughs> you understand the branding and marketing of all this while I'm asking and digging in so far. Look, and at the end of the day... Thank you for bringing that up. It all comes down to brand and marketing. You can have the greatest product in the world. If nobody knows about it and they can't find a way to distribute it, you're not going to be successful. You can take a really crappy product and put good brand and marketing, and you're going to be very successful. Um, back in the 70s and the early 80s, there was a guy named Gary Dahl. He created this thing called the Pet Rock. It was a rock. And it made millions of dollars because it was at every grocery store checkout lane. They had commercials about have your rock come over with my rock and have a rock party. Um, another great example is bottled water. It's freaking water, man. I don't care what anyone says about this water tastes better. Than that. Yeah, whatever. It, it's still water. It's free. But the reason water is so big is because it's owned by Dasani is owned by Coca-Cola. And it's distributed and it's marketed. That's why water makes so much money. It's not because of the product, but because of the distribution and the marketing of it. That well, bottled water is probably the best of those. That just makes you go, man, where was I? Well, I was sleeping for that one. No. <laughs> well, and again, you and I could come up with a special water that tastes different or whatever else. How are we going to distribute it? How are you going to get it into the grocery stores? Well, you can't just knock on the door of Kroger's and say, take my product. You have to already be selling 10 other products, and then the, then they maybe let you have this new product get in there on the back of the shelf. So distribution is really the thing. And, and that brings up another point about uh, entrepreneurs are so wrapped up with patents and scared that someone's going to steal their idea. Look, a patent costs tens of thousands of dollars to get. And even if you write your own patent, there's still a lot of fees and other stuff. But the power of a patent is not the patent. It's it's defending the patent. And to defend a patent is typically 12 to 18 months with an average of about $80,000 a month in legal expenses. So unless you have that kind of money to defend your patent, why would you get one? What you would what I would rather tell you to do is take all that energy and money and put it in Facebook ads and target people that are somebody that really wants bottled water or wants the pet rock or whatever and find ways to market it. And if someone copies you, let them copy you. Copying means that you've got a good product and that there's a market for it. You need to beat them with innovation, with distribution, with marketing, and come up with that next generation of product while they're trying to copy your old one. Well, and Pepsi and Coke have lasted quite a while. They're not exact copies of each other, but close enough for the sake of this conversation. There's room it's for all about the brand. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so you kind of dabbled in this, but I'm interested because obviously we're internet people, right? Me and you. Uh, you mentioned being on the back shelf at Kroger, but obviously podcasts don't end there most of the time. That'd be pretty cool if you could go to Kroger and pick up some podcasts. But anyways. Anyway. <laughs> well, they could. I mean, they got, they got gift cards up front, and you can get a gift card for everything. So who knows? Maybe you could get a oh. MP3 download of your podcast. But anyway, so but that's kind of... Uh, <laughs> Now you got my wheels start. Well, anyways, we'll have to come back to this. Um, <laughs> but the internet has changed everything, right? Amazon, Walmart. I mean, you could go anywhere, and now everything's online to buy. So you don't necessarily have to even be in the store. But having said that, I'll say this again: everything's everywhere. 
So how do you, I mean, it's that brand, but how do you get started out of that gate when you're trying to? Look, this is the greatest time in human history to be an entrepreneur. In 10 minutes, you can take an idea, open up your phone, create a website, set up a shopping cart feature, run an ad on Amazon or Facebook and be making money within an hour or two. It's, it's mind-blowing what the opportunities are that are out there. The key here is you want a niche. You want to try to find a certain area. So for me, my niche was firefighters. Number one, I am a firefighter, so they're going to trust me more than a non-firefighter. Number two, I know everything about firefighter very intimately because I did it for 10 years and I can see all that stuff. I know what the problems are and I know what solutions need to be out there. And then... You need to focus on how, again, how you're going to distribute it. I mean, I was an N of one. You need an N of a thousand or 10,000 or 100,000. How do you do that? Distribution. You go to trade shows. You find out who are the big distributors of whatever product. You see if they'll carry your product. And at the end of the day, the person that touches the customer makes the most money. So when you sell to a distributor, the distributor may be making 30, 40% profit where you're only making 10 or 15%. But the key is... You can get a lot of different distributors and a lot more people and you make your money on the volume, not necessarily uh, that profit. There's a saying that pigs get fat and hogs get slaughtered. You want to be a pig, but you don't want to just say, hey, I don't want to give up any equity in my company. I don't want to sell for any discounts. You're being a hog. If you're saying, hey, I'd rather have a small piece of a large pie than a a big piece of a small pie, I'm willing to sell 10% of my company to this investor. I'm willing to take less money than my distributor does because they've got more uh, reach than you can. So I I did see this earlier and I failed to ask you, where can people get the exit signs and review all that stuff? Because... Well, most of our exercises are available at Home Depot. Just go to homedepot.com, type in LumaWare, L-U-M-A-W-A-R-E. Uh, we've got about 80 different styles of exit signs and a whole portfolio of other glow-in-the-dark products that go in stairwells and on other type of stuff. Um, and, and then, you know, we, we sell directly. We've got quite a few uh, distribution channels with a lot of B2B companies out there. That's cool. Home Depot, man. My kids play that uh, that. TikTok some the the Home Depot commercial all the time. Sorry, you said Home Depot and I just started. Nope. <laughs> I tell you, I mean, Home Depot changed my company. You know, I um I was doing about a million dollars a year in sales up to that point. We hit Home Depot and it, you know we became a thirty million dollar business very quickly. And what they did is they they really were good about not giving me more business than we could handle. And the example is. If I put my product on the shelves in Home Depot the first day and they didn't sell, they they not only take them all back off the shelf, but they charge you a premium to, to have those done. So what they did first was just do online and we just did one product. And then as we started getting sales and they said, okay, you got to buy this new software system and it cost 50,000 bucks. And then we got a couple more sales and the software automated. Then we went into their business to business group. They have a Home Depot uh, supply group. And then we went into the stores and we never ended up going on the shelves. You, you, the shelves are difficult because, again, you have to move product very quickly on the shelves or you get in trouble. So every Home Depot has a pro desk where you can buy, you know, they've got, say, 10 million products at the pro desk where there's only maybe a thousand products in the stores. And that's kind of how we slowly grew up to be able to handle that volume of sales. Which is good. I mean, I'm glad to hear that there's a all header bad pun for a firefighter in place to uh to get you going because you could literally jump off in the deep end and be out before you get in well and, and don't get what's the word i want to use don't get so starry-eyed when they like oh walmart or lowe's or kroger's gonna take us uh, so they can put you out of business very very quickly and more importantly they can cost you more money if you don't do it the right way it's all about real small steps one after the next And again, you always got to be thinking about that cash conversion cycle. If Home Depot called me tomorrow and said, I want to have 50 exit signs in every one of our shelves. I mean, you're talking, there's 2,800 Home Depot stores. So 50 times 2,800, that is crazy number. Well, then I got to spend tens of millions, hundreds of millions. And guess what? Home Depot doesn't pay you until it gets sold. And guess what? If it doesn't sell, they're going to charge you back and they're going to charge you a premium. 
So you may think, hey, you know, I just hit the jackpot because they want to put it on every shelf. Hell no, you just killed yourself and you don't even realize it. <laughs> it's about taking your time and going slowly and methodically and having a really good team of people that can manage that process for you. As I said, that sounds like the reverse Powerball being hundreds of millions of dollars in debt. No. <laughs> it really is. And I've seen lots of businesses failed because they 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 tried to get too close to the sun and they got burned just like Icarus. Okay, so you mentioned the book earlier. I, I feel like because we've got about 15 minutes left, i got to get it out of you. Well, because you wrote it. Because I can't write. I mean, I write tweets and social media posts, and even those aren't great. So you, you managed to put a book together. So first and foremost, uh, kudos for that. Well, thank you. And by the way, I can't write either, but I know how to tell stories. And all the book is is just taking those stories. There's lots of tools out there that can do dictations and other stuff. Um, the book is about my warrior journey. So it starts with my experience. Uh, this time last year, I almost died of COVID. I spent two weeks in the ICU, intubated, did not think I was going to make it, had several very intimate uh, near-death experiences, you know, feeling myself float outside of my body, seeing myself go down the black tunnel, all that stuff that they talk about. It's true. I saw it. Um, and I'm like, what can I learn from this? Because when I got out of the hospital, I had this new energy for life, this new appreciation. It was also the same thing that happened when I was going through those dark days where I thought I was going to go bankrupt in my company and what I had to learn from that. So I go through the science of adversity, how your body gets ready for emergencies. If you've ever been in a car accident, what you'll find is everything slows down right before the moment of impact. That's your body's telling you, hey, something big is going to happen and we're going to prepare you for it by dilating your pupils and increasing your hearing and and all these other types of things. So I go through that. And then the second half of the book is talking about all the warrior principles. And those are tenacity, uh, grit, um, you know, coming up with ways to be uh, adaptable, coming up with courage. Um, I talk about honor. Um, one of the last chapters that I think is one of the most important chapters is serenity. You know, there is a real serious problem in the military with depression and suicide and those type of things. They, they say the numbers about 10 to 15 percent of the military identifies with having suicidal thoughts because of depression, usually caused by PTSD or traumatic incidents. Now, I'm sure the number is a lot higher, but a lot of people in the military won't admit to that because you can get in trouble sometimes. If you say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling, then you can lose a clearance or get taken off of a certain elite team. But that number is 70% in entrepreneurs because 90% of entrepreneurs fail within 10 years. And there's no system in place like there is in the military for that camaraderie and that honor and that purpose. And so it's really important to have serenity. And some of the tips that I, I like to give people, real simple stuff. Number one, get a good night's sleep. That's one of the first things you sacrifice as an entrepreneur is you don't sleep a lot. Number two, you got to exercise. There's a connection between the mind, the body, and the spirit. Um, and um, you have to find some way to practice mindfulness. Now, that mindfulness could be meditation. It could be just every day going for a little walk. It could be waking up a little bit earlier and just having that cup of coffee by yourself and clearing your mind out. But everybody has to have some type of outlet. And, you know, alcohol and drugs and tobacco sometimes are for people. And that can be real dangerous, especially if you if you abuse those things. So try to find a good, healthy outlet and a way to have that serenity. So you mentioned meditation. Okay, so normally we talk paranormal spirituality around here and all that fun stuff. But every once in a while I find this great human interest story. So you kind of delve right into this. But I'm not going to go to the near-death experience, which I'm sure is going to frustrate some of my listeners. I'm more interested in this meditation thing because I've tried. And actually, in the last month, now you're going to love this, I've put together this kind of YouTube playlist that has a couple songs and then a sleep meditation thing, guided meditation, whatever it is. And I've been trying to listen to it every night. And I've, I've got better as, you know, I've kind of got into this program. And I'm not going to lie. It, it, it is definitely getting me to the place of knowing the, the switch to go to sleep, right? Because I'm sure you can appreciate this. Your mind gets going about all these things. And then you end up at 2 o'clock in the morning saying, oh, it's 2 o'clock. 
Yeah, I mean, you've got so many things in your brain that are going around. And when you lay down the bed and you, you kind of everything gets quiet, you start thinking, "What do I got to do tomorrow? What happened today? What do I got to do this and that?" And your your mind doesn't get a chance to relax. So I think if you look at mindfulness, there's there's kind of a hierarchy. I think the top of the hierarchy, the absolute best, is transcendental meditation. Um, yes, it does cost a couple bucks. Yes, you have to go through courses and processes. But it is incredible. And I did it for a couple of years and I can honestly say it changed my life. Then as you work your way down, you've got a ton of apps and these breathing exercises and, you know, relax your toes. Now relax your heels. Now relax your calves. Now relax your knees. And so those type of things, those are great also. But I don't want to discount the real simple form of mindfulness. And that is just being present with your thoughts and just trying to absorb nature or a quiet space or a time where you're not on your phone, which, by the way, I'm very guilty of. I can, I'm so addicted to my phone, I can't even leave it outside of my hands. Um, but just to kind of clear your mind and not think about anything. And the way you do that is you have to have something to push all that stuff out of your mind. It could be music. It could be a beautiful walk. It could be exercise. It could be all these different types of things to kind of push all that craziness out of your your head and, and try to just be. So let's ask this random question at this point. You're probably, I'm going to guess. I love doing this. You're a 6 a.m. wake-up call. Uh, a little bit earlier than that. but <laughs> how, how much earlier? Um, usually in the five range. And am I keeping you up past your bedtime tonight? What time do I don't sleep much, and that's that's <laughs> not my problem. So, you know, I try to at least start rolling into bed around 8 or 9 o'clock, and then I usually spend an hour or two in bed reading or most of the time just screwing around on my phone, which is the worst thing to do, by the way, before you go to bed. But I always seem to wake up in the middle of the night, end up trying to do something to go back to sleep, and then by that time uh, I find that if I sleep into 8 or 9 o'clock, I'm tired all day. When I wake up at five or six in the morning, I'm ready to go. Um, I love to exercise before the sun comes up. I think that goes back to my Marine Corps day, but it just, I'm not an exercise at the end of day kind of guy. I like to do it first thing in the morning because then you just feel great for the rest of the day. So what are you reading? If I may dig it. <laughs> um, so I've got a great book by uh, Jocko Wilnick, Extreme Ownership. I've been uh, reading that for a while. I've just been taking a couple pages at a time on there. Um, that's a great one. There's another phenomenal book by a guy named Gino Wickman, uh, who started the EOS process, Entrepreneur Operating System. It's called Rocket Fuel, and it talks about um, the importance of having a visionary and an integrator. So most entrepreneurial founders are really bad CEOs, and I know because I was one of them. Uh, they're great at visionary. They're great at coming up with big ideas and being creative, but they're not really good with the follow-up stuff. You need to have that person balanced out. So think of Steve Jobs. Jobs didn't even know how to make a computer. He was the vision, the, the cleanness, the simplicity of Apple. It was Wozniak that was the integrator. Um, the McDonald brothers, those guys were the visionaries, but it was Roy Kroc that was the integrator that took all that stuff they were doing and put it into a document, into a handbook, and then sold that handbook in the form of a franchise. So um, that, that's a great book, especially for entrepreneurs. So well, let's talk about that for a minute, because you kind of mentioned it earlier about being, finding an investor, but there comes that time you have to hire somebody for the first time too, or bring somebody in. Talk to me about that for a minute. Like, now you've kind of so, let your guard down enough because you've realized you can't do it all. Well, I, that, that's what caused me almost to destroy my own company. Um, what happens is your first group of people that you bring on board because you don't have money um, are there because they have big heart. Uh, the problem is a lot of those people don't have a lot of skill because if they did, you wouldn't be able to afford them. So what happens as the founder, as the entrepreneur, is you have to do your job and check with them all the time. I would have to have everybody... And I hated to do this, but I had to. They had to send all emails to me before they could send them out. And the reason I did that is there was always misspellings and punctuation. You send a good email to a big company and you misspell two words, they're not going to remember what was in the email. They're going to remember that you had two misspelled words. So then as revenue starts to increase and you can start swapping out some of those early uh, employees with people that are a little more qualified, and then the ultimate goal is for you to be the stupidest, dumbest person in the room. 
because when you do that, you've nailed it. And that for me was the turning point when I realized, hey, number one, I'm not a great CEO. I'm a damn good entrepreneur. I'm a great visionary, but I'm not a detail guy. I don't like following up on Excel spreadsheets and going to meetings after meetings. I want to get out there and do the razzle dazzle fun stuff and invent a new product and find a new way to distribute it. And so when I finally got to the point, because I had enough revenue and profit that I could A, hire people that were better than me, and then finally step down as CEO, bring in a good focus CEO, and then that way I could spend all my energy on being a visionary and being the spokesman of the company and, and really being the face out there. So that, that takes the, boy, is that is that the tougher side of that? Without having, question. I mean, having the self-awareness yeah. to say these people are better at whatever than me and taking that step back? You know, I, I will tell you that it was not an easy thing and it was something that it, I wasn't just uh, pushed into it, but pulled also from the investors that like, Hey man, you're holding the company back. And I'm like, screw you. It's my company. I know what I'm doing. But the reality was it's like your children. Um, you take care of your kids, you do stuff, but if your kids at 30 years old and you don't let them leave the house, you're not doing a good job of being a parent. You got to eventually let them go. And that's the same thing that happens with all great entrepreneurs. And the reason I think the number is so incredibly high of entrepreneurs that fail is usually the, the, the big numbers really start to get in from year five to year 10. That's when the, the, the curve really starts to hockey stick up. And I think it's because the entrepreneurs just can't get out of the way of the, the growth of the company. That's incredible. I never. Never crossed my mind, but we're, that's what we're here for tonight, to learn something and have some good times. Okay, so we've got about four minutes left. So I haven't done this in, it seems like, forever, so I'm excited to bring this back for you because I think you're going to square up on this one. I love this. Uh, Jerry Springer used to do his final thought. You know, he'd sit there and talk about whatever for a few minutes. I'm going to just open the floor and throw it out to you, and you can hit me with whatever you want to hit me off with in these last few minutes here. So I think I, I'm, I'm a big fan of Sesame Street, keeping things real simple and, you know, kind of three things to leave with. So I'll give you guys my secret success to three key things that an entrepreneur needs to do to be successful. Number one, you have to solve a problem in a unique and elegant way. We've talked about that a lot today. Number two, you have to have an unfair competitive business advantage. I didn't say illegal. I didn't say unethical, but it does need to be unfair. As an entrepreneur, you're smaller, you have less money, you don't have that experience at the bigger companies. So you have to beat them by being smart and having some type of unfair advantage. My unfair advantage was I only employed firefighters in my sales team. And so I, other companies are out there selling out with these slick sales guys that have nice suits and cars. I was using my fellow firefighters to do the sales. So that helped me out. And then the third one is you got to have kick-ass sales, marketing, and distribution. Uh, the other two don't matter if nobody knows about it, if they can't find a way to buy it, and if they can't find a way to replicate it and get it to the right place at the right time. There you go. Okay, so I got to ask you this: this this question keeps coming up. Any any ghost stories? Any paranormal activity? Any of that fun stuff? Because they just keep begging for it, and I've got two minutes left, so I'm going to ask you anyways. <laughs> Yeah, I, I've had several situations on the fire ground where you, you've you heard things or seen things that just didn't quite make sense. Um, I think one of the craziest things I saw was uh, there was a fire. I mean, the whole house was burned up. The bookshelf was burned, everything. I looked down and the Bible was completely untouched. And the guy that lived there was a pastor. And I remember carrying the Bible out and gave it to him, explained to him that everything else was destroyed. He looked at me like... Well, duh, of course it wouldn't be destroyed. And I was just like, damn. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, of course, of course it wouldn't be, right? Um, yeah, so that, 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 that's probably the closest thing that I can think of. So where could people, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm assuming you're all over social media if you're on your phone all the time. Yeah, yeah so LinkedIn is the best way to get a hold of me. Um, my website is warriorentrepreneurbook.com. Again, warriorentrepreneurbook.com. You can get the book there. I'm more than happy to um, autograph it for anybody. It's also available on Amazon and at uh, Barnes and Nobles. And then my email is also another great way to reach me. It's real simple. It's just my name, Zachary L. Green at Gmail, Z-A-C-H-A-R-Y-L-Green at Gmail. Well, Zach, I appreciate you so much for the fun that we've had tonight. 
and the knowledge and all that fun stuff that I wasn't planning on having less than an hour ago. So I, I, it worked out well, man. I can't, I can't appreciate you enough. So, well, thank you, Jim. And I hope to have you on my podcast soon here. We can do that and uh, get the bed. It's time for you. <laughs> all right, my man. I'll talk to you soon. Have a great day. You too. And there we go. Uh, just, um, that's just a great story. I'm glad, I was glad I was able to fish him out real quick and get him on. So there you go. Let's uh, have a good week and stay safe, everybody. And we'll talk to you soon. Real soon. As soon as that outro music starts playing. Any minute now. It's the Mallard Report. Yeah, the Mallard Report. Hey, I want to thank you for joining us. It's been a good show tonight. I hope you enjoyed it. Take a few moments, subscribe, share, all the fun stuff. You know how to do it. I don't have to tell you. Just uh, be ready for next week. It'll be sooner than you think. Hit Pass Moto, sponsored by Moto America, is the show that keeps you up to speed on the latest in motorcycling and brings the biggest names in motorcycle racing right to you. From candid interviews with the top names in racing to providing insights into the trends and trendsetters driving the motorcycle industry, we have you covered. New episodes are available every Thursday at pitpassmoto.com and on your favorite podcast app. Ride on!